Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. And welcome oh. to Really with Tom and Dave. Oh. Hi. Hey, Tom. Hey. Ho. Dave, how are you? I'm very well. I'm, well, I'm, maybe I'm overstating it. I'm you at look least well. well. I'm at least well. You look uh, well. I feel good. Yes. Well, you look rested. Yeah. You look healthy. I Thank you. I've been fasting, uh, which uh, I hear is good for you. Yeah. For almost, for almost a day and a half now. Fat, you have not eaten a, food in a day and a half? two-day fast. So if I nod off. Or, yeah, or, that's... or well, I guess the term is faint. If I faint during this, are you going to get angry? Or is there, no, I, are you oddly, feeling... I feel great. I feel uh, I get because I've been doing the intermittent fasting for so long. I think now it's it's not so hard. To Did fast. you at least have a muffin today? Nothing, nothing. I had a tablespoon of uh, of yogurt. Okay. To uh, to to mix my to put my resveratrol in. That's okay. It. Yeah. Oof. Keep your macros oh. going. Keep yeah. Some... Some good yeah. stuff in your gut. A lot of coffee. A lot of coffee. Yeah. Any hallucinations yet? Not yet. Oh, I'd love that. Mm. Uh, oh, oh that could kick me. in. I mean, could kick yeah. in with some old stuff. That reminds me, I've got some mushrooms in the fridge. I should really, uh, well, well, after. I'll do it after. Maybe after. All I right. mean, maybe after, or at least about 20 minutes before we're done. Yeah. Just so, you All know, right. uh, so contend yeah. with that. And everything in LA is good? We can't complain here. Well, we could. I mean, there's plenty to complain about here in yeah. LA, but not that my home is fine. Everything, everything is yeah. is. Uh, I, I'm excited for today's conversation. We have a wonderful guest today. We got a super cool guest. A, oh, it, yeah, it's, it's good really, times, and we're not just saying that this time. Oh, we no. really do have a super cool guest. Yes, not that we've ever. Guest. You know, no, they've all been good, but this is they've a all been guest. This is somebody good. who's been uh, at the forefront of of what's been going on in the uh, disclosure movement and. Uh, and changing the culture surrounding uh, UFOs. And I'll let you do the intro. I'll a thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Ryan Graves um, is a former FA-18 pilot who currently serves as the executive director of Americans for Safe Aerospace. Um, he was also a major participant in this summer's historic congressional hearings on UAPs. 
And it is his his courage in standing up on this issue has been amazing. Um, it is this now famous footage, which we are about to show you, known as the gimbal sighting, that uh, seems compelled Ryan uh, into the national spotlight on the issue of UAPs and pilot safety. Um, and Chrissy, if you have that, let's play that footage. Dude, this is a fucking drone, bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, I think, dude. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing. It's rotating. Very Still cool. amazing. Still amazing footage. Very cool. Uh, Ryan Graves joins us on there Rui. He there he is. Hi, Good Ryan. Thanks. Thanks Dave, Tom, pleasure to be here. So nice to see you. It was so so. It was so great to meet you at the Soul Foundation uh, symposium. Uh, how many was that? How long ago was that? Now, just a couple of weeks, or? Gosh, it feels like it's been much longer than that. It's it was quite an event. It was an honor to be there. Uh, I'm sure you felt the same way. It was a really incredible event, and I know several people that were there that reached out to me after and said, even just today, that were like, "Hey, we're still digesting." <laughs> yes, digesting. I wanted yeah. to ask your impressions of because Dave and I have been trying to deconstruct it like multiple podcasts, just trying to break down everything that yeah. was said. And I mean, do you have? I mean, what is your general takeaway from that? uh amazing conference gosh i mean from my takeaway at least from my vantage point as well i'll say for me it was incredibly impressive how how pragmatic and how um how how you could have you, you didn't know what room you were in you could have walked in any other conference and that could have been a biotechnology conference it could have been a machine learning conference until you started listening to the content, it was really a demonstration of the professionalization of the topic in a way that um, is needed. Uh, and, you know, that's not always going to be a, a big excitement announcement or anything like that. But it's this reoccurring cadence of of work and effort that that needs to happen. And, you know, we're starting to see the beginnings of that, I think. And it's it's really exciting. Yeah, I think it was, it was the quiet seriousness of it. Yeah, and, and the uh, the non the non hysterical nature of it was wonderful. And yeah, and I, again, yeah, the professionalism, the scientific rigor that so many people brought to it, um, which I would say I think I told you at Soul is one of the one of the aspects of your podcast, the Merge Podcast, that I enjoy, that it's such a a quiet, intelligent, rational discussion, and Thank you me. know when you have your guests on, and it's it's always always so informative and just. Yeah, that just that comforting, <laughs> comforting tone of of rational uh, conversation, uh, and and as, you know, as much as like I think Saul was a lot of the times, uh, you know, it, it was uh, sometimes intellectually exhausting mm -hmm. over the course of a day. That there was so much to absorb, and it's not just to absorb either, but you have to really you know listen and push back against some suppositions that you may have had, some assumptions that we may have been working with for a while. So. You know, it's not just about what can we absorb, but, you know, it's a bit of a worldview to have a conversation in such a manner. Yeah, there was a lot of conversation about disclosure. Where do you fall on, on is it, are we ready for disclosure? Uh, I mean, where, there was some, at the end of the conference, some discussion of like, is society, a lot of the conversation throughout was about 
how do we prepare? How do we, do you feel dis- we're ready for disclosure? I I would, I, I would somewhat disagree fundamentally with the question, I think. Um, right. We're essentially um, ceding authority of our ability to interact with what might be just reality to the government. And we're saying, are we the populace ready to engage? You know, will you make that decision for us? And I don't think right. that's the place of the government. I don't think disclosure is something that we are are not ready for. It's already the reality we're living in in some sense. It's just whether we know it or not. Um, so do I believe that there needs to be increased transparency on this topic from the government? Absolutely. I don't think that means we need to spill every national security issue that we have. Uh, there's always, I imagine, going to be classified aspects to this conversation, and that's, I think, natural. Um, and I think there's another side of the conversation as well, which is the discovery side of the conversation. What happens out in the public sector and the commercial world to better understand this in a way that isn't controlled entirely by the government feeding right. us information or not? I think those two forces, disclosure and discovery, I think we're already in that process to some degree. I think you know, we're never going to be ready. I think it's just one of those things you need to experience to some degree. Well, I think the fact that so many people uh, so uh, sedulously turn a blind eye to this subject uh, is, is, you know, um, a clear indication that, that the public may not be ready because the public has been conditioned to not pay any attention for so long. And still, it's only a tiny percentage of the public that is paying any attention. Um, you know, a tiny percentage of the scientific community that's paying attention, a tiny percentage of the journalistic community that's paying attention. So, I mean, there was a lot of talk, a lot of people were throwing around the term catastrophic disclosure. That's all. Like several uh, people uh, were discussing that concept. And um, so I'm getting the impression you would not, you were not uh, worried about catastrophic disclosure. Well, the way I interpret the conversation, I'm eager to, to, have the videos be released so I can better um, go through some of what was said. But catastrophic uh, disclosure, for as I understood, was being communicated was that the information was being released in such a manner that was completely outside of our control. So, if say China was to release something, if something was to yeah. happen from you know from a third party actor, from a non human intelligence that were to make themselves aware, without any preparation whatsoever, without any acknowledgement. I see that as the catastrophic disclosure and I, and how, how the markets react to that, how the populace right. reacts to that. It seemed like there was maybe a short window there and the expectation is that things would steady off pretty quick, but that that's how I interpret it from that perspective. I didn't see the catastrophic disclosure as opposed to say the Schumer amendment or something mm-hmm. of that nature. It wasn't a trigger that could be pulled. It was, these kind of worst case scenarios that could potentially happen. Yeah. Well, the Schumer amendment seems like it's kind of geared towards avoiding any kind of catastrophic disclosure that, that there's a, there's exactly, a, well, they, well, they, they, in fact, title it a, a controlled disclosure. Um, um, in a sense that sort of, uh, I guess it was, and Carl Nell talked about in his talk at Saul quite a bit about the idea of, of letting information come out gradually at a pace that people can absorb it. Um, and again, I'm, I still have this feeling that no one's, the people are just going to keep ignoring it until suddenly it is this overwhelming thing that they can't ignore anymore. And they're going to go, how did I just, how, why am I just hearing about this? Exactly. And, and I don't, I don't know that there's a way around that, that the belt, the bulk of, of the population 
is going to be blindsided by this when it when it really does start to come out. I suppose I suppose you know the way you would one way to deal with that is the shock is there, but then when they get to look out and start looking into it, they see that their institutions of their government have um, organizations that are at least in some small way trying to either further communicate or process it or identify these objects. And, you know, we're starting to see the inklings of that with Arrow, with NASA standing up efforts, with the Homeland Security Office um, releasing files, with the FAA potentially getting involved. So those government institutions are are starting to form up. Yeah, yeah I thought that it was really reassuring, actually, um, at Saul to see, well, just that, that the Saul Foundation exists and that... Uh, you know, Americans for Safe Aerospace exists and that Galileo Project exists. And there's starting to be this sense of like, almost what you're saying, Ryan, like, well, like the government sort out what it's going to do. It's going to be done in its sort of fucked up fashion. It'll be a little of this, a little of that. It'll be, they'll pull back, they'll lunge forward, there'll be leaks. But it does seem like owning the power of just trying to create the conditions uh, in, in certain areas, I think it's really um, I think it's it it helps a great deal the way you're focusing on just pilot safety, a very like, sort of rational way of just dealing with this. And I do want to kind of use this as a way to sort of uh, hear about your experience firsthand. But um, I found that just sort of a civilian like, OK, well, you know what? There's a pretty cool plan B here, um, you know, if the government because there's one potential for it just to go from one black hole to another black hole, even with the Schumer amendment. Right. I mean, it's in a way it could just be like, okay, yeah. it's all going well, guys, don't worry about it. We've got it. And, and, uh, everything's fine. Um, do you feel that sort of partnership with these other groups? I mean, do you see the potential for that? And is, and is that feel like it it's working for you? So in, in short, I do see the potential to have those type of collaborations. So there are, uh, different stakeholders within various agencies, um, such as NASA, within Arrow as well. I mean, there's a lot of good people, as much bashing as Arrow gets, you know, there's a lot of good people that work at Arrow that are really passionate about figuring out what this is. Um, and they're hamstrung by limitations and resources and, you know, limitations at the end of the day of what can be done as they're trying to do a lot of this historical research. Um, but, you know, to your point, with Americans for Safe Aerospace with some of these uh, other organizations like the Galileo Project, you named the UAP Integration Outreach Committee from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. These are all public sector um, investigations into this topic. And yes, it doesn't look like much right now, but that, that process is going to continue. More resources are going to come into that, more capabilities and technologies. And that's just going to drive the conversation forward there. There's a lot of people interested in getting to the bottom of these these questions. And they a lot of people realize the government might not be the best place to look for those answers. Yeah. Now, well, I, I guess I was going to ask you, you've, you've kind of been on a personal journey with this subject, going going back to your military service, you know, uh, off off of Virginia. Um, when you're when you're encountering all of these things, and also encountering the uh, the stigma and the and the blocks that were put in front of you in terms of being able to um, communicate with each other as as pilots, communicate uh, you know with your you know higher up the the command chain. Uh, so you went through all of that, um, and then you 
decided to become a, a a public voice for this. I think like the first time I think I ever saw you, I think was season two of the Unidentified series. Was that the first time you went season public? one? Actually, was I it think. season one? It was yeah, near the end of um, it. Though, right? Yeah, that was that was my right. kind of public appearance, you could say. Yeah, which was I remember that it being an amazing interview, and it was, uh, you know, and it, it's always that thing where you keep going. Well, all right. Uh, I, I can't be shocked. But then when I heard you being interviewed and heard, you know, every day for two years encountering UFOs, I went, okay, I'm a little shocked by that. <laughs> like that, that was a level of sort of disclosure and a level of uh, engagement uh, that I don't think anyone was ready to hear at that point. And it, it surprises me that people were surprised by that shocked by that only at, at the level because when i was in the navy and you know we would go out and occasionally we'd be talking about these events and striking up random conversations with someone you know from a brewery or something we'd, we'd tell some of these stories and at the time they'd be like oh you'd see them like really stop and think about it like wow that's actually you know really interesting and over time it was just kind of like a almost a fun tale that we would tell um until I saw that New York Times article in 2017 um, when it no longer became a fun issue because we realized there was no resolution coming forward to this. Um, but when uh, I did 60 Minutes and and they paused and he said, wait, every day for, for two years, I was actually shocked that he was shocked by that because I had told that story many times in those scenarios I just mentioned to you. Uh, and it was, you know, I wasn't used to people almost being as shocked as he was. It had almost become so normalized for me at that point. Yeah, I think it was somehow more digestible when you heard the Tic Tac story and, you know, the David Fravor and Alice Dietrich that this, you know, you go, oh, this was a one-off, a weird, maybe life-altering experience. But the fact that, that UFOs were such a part of your daily life that they were they they were really a nuisance issue. Yeah, well, not just a nuisance, but a safety issue. Yeah, and you know, I can't help but smile when I hear that that video that you played with the with the gimbal video. That's not it, you on the video, is it? Or it's is not, that but just my very good friends in my squadron. Okay. So I, I can't help but, but laugh when I hear their voices. Uh, but you know, they were almost hitting these objects, and when those that the article came out in 2017, New York Times. I was still in the Navy. I was just at a different command in Mississippi, and so. When that came out, I said, holy smokes, you know, I assumed this was going to get resolved during the normal course of events through the normal channels. We weren't thinking this was some UAP UFO at this point. We just didn't know what it was. We weren't making that leap. Um, but it wasn't being resolved. That that shed the light on it. And that's really the, the point where I decided I had to try to speak out about it some other way so that this could get resolved because my buddies were still dealing with it and still having mid-airs. Yeah. Now, have any of the people on that tape come forward or gone public or are they? No, um, they're both uh, still active duty, although one is uh, maybe getting out pretty soon, actually. So um be interesting to have that conversation when the times do. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm guessing um, you're probably I mean, you 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 always seem to stay very calm about things. But I, I have to assume that you've been a little frustrated by some of the. Um, I would say scurrilous debunking of <laughs> of the of the data in that in that video. Um, I mean, so when 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 you hear people with very little expertise suddenly explaining something that the military hasn't been able to explain with tremendous amount of expertise, how do you how do you absorb that? 
it is what it is. You know, people are going to have their opinions on it. But the fact of the matter is, like you said, Dave, they just don't have all the information. Um, you know, when we are using our sensors, our radar system is our primary sensor. Eyeballs are our primary sensors. They release, you know, they declassified the video. That was the easiest to declassify because it doesn't have a lot of great data or fidelity to it. I mean, that's the bottom line is why that was able to come out. Um, and so, you know, if you want to disregard all the other information that comes along with, with that experience, and that's, you know, that's fine if you want to limit your analysis that way. But when, yeah. you know, for me, I just disregard it because it's not really a direction to get to the source of truth if you're going to just disregard that. Yeah, I found that, like, I've gotten to lengthy arguments with certain debunkers until I decided to stop doing that, um, where I kept saying it's can't not... win that argument. Dave. Yeah, well, I, I basically just tried to say, but you Don't can't... do it while you're fasting, Dave. Yeah, it's I was not, talking to somebody said, particularly edgy. Yes. That, that he said, you know, well, I'm only looking at the video and I'm saying, but that's not an honest way of looking at the data. So you can't just look at the video. You have to also take into account the eyewitness testimony of the of the of the pilots. You have to uh, take into account that there's other data like, you know, like with the, the Tic Tac. And I'm assuming also with the gimbal, there was also um, a lot of radar tracking going on at the same time that mm -hmm. corroborated what you guys were experiencing in the air. Um and you can't if you if you're narrowing your aperture of what you're willing to look at to the point the thing that you can debunk and even then that it's pretty sketchy um then it's, it's inherently dishonest mm -hmm. um which is for me the very frustrating thing and, and actually watching it this time i realized one thing i hadn't really thought about before is like when when the gimbal rotates it also stops that's right yeah um and that's pretty crazy because they're, they're saying it's in 120 knot winds that's so like category four hurricane winds mm -hmm. it and was it, proceeding in one direction and then against the wind essentially right? stopped and proceeded in the other direction um and there was that was that was my statement and then the FLIR video existed and it wasn't many months later until someone so it might have been um dare i say his name mick west group that, <laughs> yeah uh, i was trying to avoid it <laughs> okay uh <laughs> but it, yeah it's mcwest that's yeah. what we're talking about he, you know his model basically proved out my thesis that the object was you know was stopping and changing direction at that point so i mean they may disregard my what i say but my what i've said and what the pilots have said in the past have been validated many times yeah. now and it's so Ryan, I, I just want to, because I think part of our audience will know your story very well. Part of our audience, because we kind of want to be an on-ramp to people just sort of checking in, like, would, yeah. I'd love to know just what your very first encounter was. And 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 then I want to tie that to um, just your training as a pilot, because we had heard some very interesting, uh, a very interesting talk at Saul Foundation about pilot training and observation and what that entails. Um, can you just talk about your first encounter and then what your training, how you evaluated what you were seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of kick off how we got here, I had joined this squadron VFA 11 where we were flying the F-18 Super Hornet, uh, which is at the time our premier fighter uh, in the Navy. And one of our primary tools is a radar, which we look out and we can see other aircraft out there. Uh, and we were flying with uh, what's called the AVG-73 radar. We came back from a deployment in 24, uh, um, well, 2012, but we started upgrading the radar shortly after that to the new okay. high-speed Gucci, as we call it, uh, radar system, the ABG-79. And 
it, it took about six months to upgrade all the jets one by one. So you might fly with an upgraded jet one day and then the next day uh, back in an old radar. Uh, and when we started flying with new radar, we were seeing all these additional objects um, that we weren't seeing just before with the radar. And so our training initially tells us and our experience initially tells us that these are most likely perhaps some type of radar error because they weren't behaving like normal aircraft. They were completely stationary okay. or they were supersonic or they were in holding patterns. And that was a little bit harder to rationalize being a radar error, but okay, that's where we're at. But you're um, working out a new software. Like you're trying to sort, you're just basically working sure. out new tech. So it's like, right? Okay. Are we testing something here? Are there errors right. here? Uh, but as we, you know, start to lock onto these objects and our other sensors were capturing them, uh, such as our AT FLIR, which is what the gimbal video was, um, we're now correlating that, that detection with multiple sensors, different types of sensors, in fact. Um, so now we have high confidence that there actually is something there. That it's an object. You have something that can tell physically is materially in space. It's reflecting, to... it's giving off IR energy and that's what it's looking to us uh, on our uh, infrared camera. Um, and that's being matched with a, like a, like a ping from the radar essentially at the exact same spot. So it's like, okay, these are two very good indications. So now we have to respect this, not as a radar error, but as something, you know, potentially that could be a physical object that could impact the jet. And so from our perspective as pilots, like next thing we want to do is try to go look at it, right? Go yeah. see what this thing actually is. And why do we have all these things all of a sudden that we weren't seeing just before? Uh, but we don't always have the agency to do that. We might be setting up for a big mission, training mission. There's 14 other jets waiting for us or something of that nature. So um, eventually when the time was right, and you know, to tell you my first personal experience trying to go get a closer look at these objects is one of these flights where we had extra time, um, very clear VFR day, as we call it, um, relatively low winds, sunny day, no clouds. Um, and we have one of these objects on the radar. There are several, uh, but we elected to try to what we call merge with one of the um, stationary objects. So when I say stationary, they're stationary over the ground, uh, which is very unusual uh, okay. for something in the air, unless it's tethered. And if it's tethered, it's going to be kind of bouncing around up there. And mm -hmm. when you say several, when your radar is, are, how how much of a, a expanse does that cover? Like if you're seeing several objects? Yeah. So the, I, I can't use any numbers, but um, I'll just loosely say hundreds of square miles. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah. Uh, across various altitudes. So, you know, we're talking a pretty wide swath of area here in front of me, uh, but we only work in certain areas and I'm really focused on the things that are probably within plus or minus 50 to 80 miles of my aircraft, uh, which is maybe how I'd move around in one of those sub areas. So, and there was one not too far away. So, Hey, let's go check it out. So what we typically do in a scenario, and we, we do these type of things all the time where we're coming in at a very high speed pass with another fighter jet. It's called the merge, and that's really how we kick off a dogfight. I'm sure you guys might have seen the new Top Gun movie. You probably saw a couple of merges in that. Um, mm -hmm. So where are you doing that? I haven't oh, seen it yet. Don't tell Dave. John Hamm. He's afraid. Got, he's got <laughs> to see it. It's very good. I know. I want to see it, but I, I know seen. a lot of the pilots that that flew. Uh, in oh, the, really? Uh, yeah, it was my time frame. Essentially, I was just on the East Coast. But uh, anyway, so we come to that merge. We start the fight. Or 1200 knots of relative closure. So, you know, a bullet going past, but we're still assessing the weapon loadout. We're looking at uh, whether their flaps are auto dropping down. We're seeing if there's vapor around the wing to see if they're compressing the air around it, see if they're low energy or high energy. 
So all this stuff that we analyze, wow. even in that, you know, yeah. millisecond there. And so a stationary object, I slow down about 200 knots. I'm about five to a thousand feet below it, 500 to a thousand feet below it. So I can look up at it. Very banal, like easy scenario, right? Uh, this is as easy as it gets. Multiple sensors are locked on. The radar is locked into it. We get closer. The FLIR can now see it. Our air-to-air -air missiles on our wings are locking up to it and screaming at us, giving us a tone to let us know they're locked on. So all our sensors are working and saying, yes, there's something right there. And all that's being projected into my helmet, into my visor. And so as, I, as I'm below it and I look up, right where I, it should be, I'm, I see a square. It's telling me where to look. And I see the numbers tick down. I'm looking and can't see anything. It just kind of mm -hmm. goes by us. Um, and I have a weapon system officer in the backseat, a Wizzo. Um, they didn't see it either. We circled back around, um, and it was still there on our, on our sensor systems. So that's got to be a little creepier than actually seeing a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> it was disconcerting. You know, it's like I have to trust all my sensors. So now yeah. I like have to not trust my eyeballs, So, which is not a good place to be. And you know, kind of prevented us from wanting to get that close in the future because now we can't really safely deconflict from the object, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Are you normally when you're flying, I mean, and I would know, are you using the windshield? Are you just space or are you mostly using sensors to know where you are in relation to other things? The short answer is the sensors, 100%. But, you know, we do visual flying, we fly close formation, but, you know, the sensor is like using your eyes versus your nose. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So again, going back to the debunkers, when they, when they like to do what, uh, they like to do what sounds like smart talk and they'll go on and on about how terrible human witnesses are. Um, you know, and then they'll talk about, you know, like a murder scene witness. Um, that really isn't the case with fighter pilots, is it? The, 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 we're not talking about a normal, we're not talking about normal human beings, you know, casually observing something. We're talking about people who are highly trained, and who expect to be debriefed at the end of their missions. Highly debriefed, yes. So, I mean, you know, we typically at the end of a flight, depending on the type of mission, may debrief for five, six hours, you know, especially for a dogfighting type flight where we'll go over uh, frame by frame what we were doing right and what we were doing wrong. Yeah. Uh, but that's not to say we can't make mistakes and we do all the time. Uh, but, hey, if we say that there is something here and we don't know what it is uh, and it could be a national security concern, you would think that that's something we should pay attention to and not dismiss just off the cuff. Yeah, I think I, 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 I do the, so the, uh, the comparison that like if, if you ask me to walk through a park and then at the other end of the park say, what plants did you see? Then I'll be pretty vague about it. And if you ask me, we're going to ask you what plants you're going to see in this park, walk through it. I'll be a little better. But if you ask a botanist to walk through that park, you're going to get a lot more detail. And so when, you know, there's, there, there are gradations of, uh, of human witness. And it seems like, um, fighter pilots are probably at the highest level of that gradation, <laughs> you know, because, you know, because your lives depend on it and, and, and also just, and our said, lives, <laughs> yeah, and you've got these, our lives depend on it. And you've got those debriefings that are going to be hellish. I'm assuming if you haven't been paying really close attention. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can not disagree with anything you said there, Dave. Well, that's good because I feel really smart <laughs> about it. He's always happy when no one disagrees with the, um, so you must be tripping out though, when you have, so are you, cause you're now like either my plane is completely malfunctioning 
uh, in in a coordinated yeah. fashion. You know, like every highly sense unlikely break. though. But yeah, yeah. and my yeah, no, and my eyes are dirty liars. Yeah, yeah, and and so you're. I mean, do you just go? All right, that was that was fucking weird. Or are you going back to your superiors or whoever you how you report back and be like, okay, this. I mean, it could be a cloaking technology. I mean, you might be dealing with adversarial technology. Yeah. Um, you could it have potentially flown off or you're I mean, how are you reconciling this? Is it is it wow, that was anomalous or that is super serious and I got to deal with it? I mean, in your initial uh, contact with this thing. Yeah. So, you know, the initial phase, I'll say almost was the, the full two years in some sense. I mean, we were so busy and so focused on the day to day of the job that this was not like raising right. that much attention because after like, well, we can't see these things. Let's just stay 50 miles away. You know, it's very easy for us to do that and we'll never ever see it or come close to it. So yeah, uh, that's not that much distance for us. You know, we can hop over another hundred miles and work somewhere else. So um, it's very easy to uh, avoid these things. And that's what we did. We put them into a, a, it's just a safety bucket as a hazard and, and said, okay, you know, if we are acknowledging these things, whatever these things are, you know, here and they are physical, then great. It's very easy to avoid that being a problem by just going somewhere else. Yeah. I'm continued to be a problem and continued to be a problem. And now we're canceling flights because there's too many in there and then we're almost hitting them. Yeah. And so it's it crazy. kind of escalated. And I think and, some people might, might hear, we didn't have the time to go and look at these things and find that hard to understand if they don't understand what, like how your day is laid out. Um, not just my day, even the flight. I mean, the time you know, in the I air. only have like 45 minutes to maybe an hour and 15 minutes of fuel on certain right. types of flights. So every second, like literally counts. So we can't just, we can cruise 50, hundred miles over, check it out, but it might totally disrupt me from being able to finish my training. So sometimes you just can't do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause your this, day, everything you're doing in the air is very tightly sort of I guess not scripted or scheduled and like there are the things you need to accomplish while you're up there. You do have and your it, moments though, where it's yeah. like, all right, you know, everyone went home and I got a few extra time here. So on the way out, I'll go check it out. So there were those opportunities. And so that was kind of how we were building this narrative, what was happening. And it was Tom, to your point, I think a lot of people were just kind of like, well, fuck, I don't know what the fuck that was and just kind of ignore it and go about their day. But I think the cadence and the murmur in the ready room and in the squadron kind of got louder and louder as the chatter persisted until we, you know, one day I walked into the ready room and my buddy was standing there with a, a his jaw open, look of shock on his face saying, I was hit one of those fucking things. And we all knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about whatever these things were, but we hadn't seen them yet. Um, and he so described he knew it for he the first almost, time. So by sensor, he knew he'd almost collided with it, but had well, he, he had physically, he had had visual he physically seen it? Visually? visually, yeah, it was the first time. So it was oh, surprising. Wow. Um, he, he just, so he was, there's a single point where we entered this basically big box in the sky off the coast of Virginia. And not that point that's where we enter in. And when we leave, we basically enter out 5,000 feet or wherever below. Um, and so right at that entrance point, him and another aircraft were going in and then boom, this object went right down the right side of the lead aircraft, about 50 feet off his wing, uh, split the aircraft. He got a look at it for the first time described as a dark gray or a black cube inside of a clear sphere. The corners were touching the inside of the sphere. Um, he, it's hard to estimate distance, but due to the fact that uh, it was right next to another aircraft, he was able to estimate the size to be about 5 to 15 feet in diameter, which is a pretty good guess because that's uh, pretty close to what uh, Arrow has been reporting 
uh, for the the circular or the spherical objects that they've been detecting. I think it was two to four meters in diameter. So, mm-hmm. did and that if, match? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, Dan. no, you go, Don. Is was that the what, the gimbal was different than that described object? So you're yep. seeing at least two different objects, or are you seeing more in terms presumably of different- at least two? The gimbal object presumably was different. The IR signature was much different. You know, we hadn't been seeing that kind of gimbal shape, you know, uh, however you want to call it. Uh, we, we were not seeing that. And I had not seen that before. I had not heard of it. We weren't keeping a collection, right? So very well, someone might have seen it, but we weren't really gathering data. This wasn't my job. I wasn't like the guy totally crazy about this in the squadron. I was, you know, just trying to do my job and like anyone else. And that's something you got to be aware of, right? You don't want to be the guy that's totally that guy. I mean, how do you, because you've now got a collision, possible collision, your friends freaked out. Yeah, they physically seen it. That has to get reported, right? Yeah, it does. So we did. Uh, we submitted an aviation safety report, uh, uh, what we call a hazard report, a HAZREP, uh, which says, hey, this was not a serious incident. We did not collide with this, but it could have been. Uh, so please be cautious of this event. And we had to kind of conf- come clean in some sense, at least the squadron did as a group, that this was happening because we're in this report, we essentially had to say that this wasn't the first time we had seen these objects. Mm. So um, if you actually go back and look, I don't know how if anyone's looked at the dates that closely, but there's like several safety reports from the, they're basically submitted at the same time. Uh, and the other ones were predated. So they were events that occurred before that near midair that were documented at the same time and backdated because we want to have a trail of the events. So yeah. as soon as we're like, oh, I guess this is a real problem. Then we had to start generating the paperwork for so we generated other hazards for other events that were documented but not filed and continued from there now it's interesting the navy uh, i guess i'm assuming this through the fact that certain uh, navy intelligence people have come forward and been seen to be a little bit more forthcoming with information versus i guess the air force or stuff like that but how how were your how were the superior how was this taken um was it suppressed did emails disappear the way Tim Galladay, you know, Admiral Galladay said that they did when they things were reported with Noah. How, how was that received? So I wasn't part of that email chain that uh, Tim mentions. Um, I have every reason to believe what he said. Um, but that's, um, that's just not the level it was at. I mean, it was very much just like a sure I'll pat, you know, we our commanding officer basically overhears us, you know, more or less he's sitting there, we're chatting. It's not, you know, it's not that structured if you if you right. will so you know he's hearing all the chatter and he reports it up but it has no place to go from at least the perspective that we can see there is no reporting mechanism um there's there's no one that received this information when we submit these safety reports through the naval center that's not a proactive mechanism that's simply more or less a tracking mechanism and a communication mechanism but we're not expecting investigators to reach out to us to help resolve that issue in any manner so mm-hmm. there you know we did what we could and then we went back to the business of trying not to hit them but not expecting anything to happen and and nothing did now since it seems like there is a paper trail of these these this phenomena happening going back many many decades do you think the fact that there is no reporting mechanism, that there was no effective way for you guys to get this investigated, do you think that's a deliberate absence of a of a plan? Or I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I haven't seen 
that directly from my limited time. I mean, you know, compared to most people, but 10 years, you know, pretty limited window into the workings of the fighter community and how that could be suppressed. But, you know, to your point, it, it's probably been something that's been happening for a long time. So how could that be suppressed over such a long period? And I think it's probably mostly just the stigma, right? It's the yeah. stigma, the fear of losing your, your pilot's license and, you know, getting ridiculed from your squadron mates. It's a tight community. So, I mean, you know, I know that certainly is certainly, you know, was a consideration before I came forward. I was going to ask about that. I mean, that's a big, that's a big deal, you know? Um, and I just, first of all, thank you for your service and, and thank you for your courage in coming forward with this. Um, what was, I mean, what was that like in relationship to your peers, to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing just in terms of like, or, or just your own personal choice? I mean, what, how long did you have to kind of think on that? I didn't want to say I had that much time, but I had enough. Um, and, you know, I made my decision, as I said, when I saw the 2017 New York Times article and I said, OK, wow, this isn't getting resolved. But before I actually made the decision, I called some of my colleagues that were on the West Coast still that were on the East Coast still. Uh, and I said, hey, I, you know, are, are we still having a problem with with those with those mm -hmm. objects? Are we and yes, they were. They're like, yeah, they're still out here. We got a a notice to airmen, basically a, a bulletin notice to say, watch out for them. Uh, but they're, they're still here and yeah, you know, we're getting ready to go on our next cruise. So yeah, cause happened. you guys were, pre were preparing to go off and do other dangerous things. Exactly. Like, so, at the time yeah, you're experiencing all this, a lot on your plate. Yeah. You guys are, you guys are, are heading off to the middle East, right? That's what you're training for. Yeah, absolutely. And, but you know, when I, so I, I wanted to check in with them. And when I realized that they were still having this issue, that's when I, I, I said, okay, you know, I, a lot of the people within this community, at least the ones that don't know me are probably gonna, I'll just slightly say frown upon this conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I felt, you know, I felt there was, there was a, there, there a responsibility to help my peers that were still trying to deal with this issue. Uh, and that was more important to me than what the cost would have been for, you know, the people thinking this was something not worth leaning into. Yeah. So and, you know, and Dave, to your point, sorry, is that like, you know, the, the, my colleagues that were flying, they were getting ready for, for deployment. You know, they have so much more in their, their plate. They're not UAP investigators. So, you know, so mm -hmm. they needed help. They needed help so they could do their job. And that's just what I was trying to do. Yeah. I think if, uh, if you're having to scrub training missions because there were too many UFOs in your airspace, and and your training missions are designed to avoid you being killed. That's Not just any training problem. missions, but the gimbal video was taken during a, a massive workup training mission where we bring out the entire carrier group out there. Uh, so you had aircraft carrier, multiple uh, surface ships. You have all the the fighter jets and crew that go on the carrier. And we could basically are conducting a war game mm -hmm. out there. And those events were getting canceled due to these events. And those are yeah. the events that Tim Gallaudet was emailing about that, hey, where these events are getting canceled. And these are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of assets and money and, and resources being used for these missions. It's not just a one-off mission. Yeah, so the threat isn't just that you might collide with one of the things during training. It's the fact that your training is being hampered and impaired. It is at a strategic level. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, 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 a safety threat to to all of those the people involved in those in those in that training and those maneuvers yeah it's a national security issue absolutely and yeah. the aviation safety yep 
was there ever uh, a chance because it is it's all happening like on the side of missions it's happening before and after missions like during but you're trying to do the mission but is anyone able to sort of ascertain behavior ask you know like get a sense of like okay are they do they are they watching us are they just here oblivious to us does they seem interested in us uh, was there anything about the crafts you know uh movements or behavior that felt sentient yeah i mean gosh there's just so much to unpack there now like at, you know a few years ago i would have said like you know we don't you know we didn't that wasn't our experience and it's still not but the more i've been talking to people the more information i receive is you know, I am hearing, you know, there is clear indication that there is some response to to detection. You know, these things seem to as we get closer as we kind of light them up as we. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P say with more you know electromagnetic frequencies or, or uh, radiation more radars more sensors on them you know they'll respond they move away you know um mm -hmm. we'll see them um we've seen them kind of get in the middle of fights and then the crew knock it off and they go investigate it and the thing will take off so there are reactions they're not completely out there just doing their own thing as if they couldn't see anything mm -hmm. in the world they're they're aware of your presence and your activity. Yeah, it's a sense. Now, there's also like people who, who, like certainly civilians who have had like encounters with strange craft. Um, and I don't know if this is something you want to go into, but did you or any of the other pilots that you were communicating with then, uh, did anyone get any sense of an interaction with them beyond just what we consider like a normal interaction, like an intuitive interaction mm -hmm. with them? So I've, I've, yeah, I understand the question you're asking. I've, I've been asked that before. I don't know the answer to that. My experience is that I did not have that experience, but I, gosh, I, that would be a hard thing. I think for a fighter pilot to open up about just on the whim at this, you know, at the stage we were at. So yeah. I wouldn't expect anyone, even if they had that experience to, to share it with me at that point. Not, not even in private moments. That would be too risky. I mean, that'd be tough. I mean, yeah, that, would, that I mean, I wish I was wrong, but that's, that's what yeah, I, no, I look, I, it's yeah, it's a, it's a big thing to admit. I mean, uh, you know, the just because it's so difficult to quantify and it's so difficult to, you know, it's I, I was wondering what your what was your context for UAP or UFOs before any of this? I mean, did you grow up caring? Did you ever see anything? Did you like what did you have curiosity toward the subject at all? I mean, I have curiosity towards science and nature and exploration. There's assumptions that there's other things in the universe. Sure. You know, I was a sci-fi reader, but 
I never like delved into the what sort of UFOlogy. I never had any type of like experience, you know, when I was younger or anything like that. So, you know, I, when I went to college, it, I think kind of the it was more entertainment than anything else. Not that it was anything more before, but you know, just normal cultural exposure, I would say. Sure. Mm-hmm. And now, once you've had this, um, I mean sort of in for a penny, in for a pound. I mean, you're getting like all kinds of information coming at you and interaction with, I mean, we're, uh, we're all still digesting the Saul Foundation, which was at, um, you know, an extraordinary level of kind of, you know, experts and academics and, and people from government and just such a, 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 you know, gathering of expertise, but there's, but even beyond that, there's so much to absorb. I'm, I'm absorbing. And do you, um, I guess it's not, do you draw a line anywhere, but what, I mean, uh, obviously it's hard to deal with this without having your mind opened a bit. And I guess what I would, I guess where I would go with this is you sat next to David Grush, um, at the hearing, uh, what, just what, and he has quite a story to, to tell, uh, and it's incredible. And, and I think, you know, and he's, and he seems very credible. Um, what, what was the congressional? What was that experience like? The congressional hearing, and and in in and and in relation to sitting next to David Grush, who's telling this story, which is eye popping. Mm-hmm. Um, just walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. I know that's a and, lot. But. Yeah, and and, with, and with, with, <laughs> it's a lot. To were, his, were his revelations kind of drawing you deeper into something maybe you didn't want to go in? You were hoping not to have to go into. Yeah, you know. So I think this question kind of started at like. You know, where do I draw the line on the conversation? It started to, yeah. and then I tend to wander. We, we, yeah, we'll conversation. we try to. I keep trying to draw a line going, oh, that's too crazy. Uh, I don't have to I don't have to pay attention to that. And every time I do that, uh, then more evidence comes forward and I go, Really? I've got to pay attention to that too. Yeah. So, you know, I don't I try to be as pragmatic with where I I put my energy into this conversation as I can. I don't I don't approach any portion of this conversation with a a presumption of good or bad or right or wrong in the conversation and very much there just to observe the, you know, experience or to receive the information and not really, you know, make any type of uh, assessment of, or of, of its validity or accuracy, but just to kind of take it into the data set. So that's really how I approach most of the conversation. And then everything else after that is really a prioritization of how much time I have and what the return on effort is. So, uh, and, you know, return of effort seems to be on the most pragmatic stuff. So I love going on rabbit holes and exploring those things as well. But um, it's not my main focus. And I, I, I stay on the more pragmatic yeah. side. And as far as, you know, moving into the hearing, uh, you know, like I said, I didn't grow up on this topic. I'm not a history UFO history buff. I don't have all that intricate knowledge that UFO community initially has. So Dave Grush's testimony was really centered around kind of that more historical conversation around what the government may or may not have done and been involved with since 1945 or so and what they've done since then. Um, and that's not my, I don't, I don't know anything about that. Um, right. and I, I don't make an assessment of whether that information is good or bad or true or false. You know, I have no reason to distrust, um, Mr. Grush. He was appointed to that position. Well, he wasn't pointed to the position, but he was in that position in order to investigate these types of claims. Uh, he's not just some random person that came forward with this information. Um, and within my, you know, network and my non-public network, I'll say, you know, there's been, um, you know, many people that have come forward to me to validate, you know, what he has had to say. 
Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so although I don't have any personal experience with what he testified to, um, I have no reason to discount anything he says. That's wild. Yeah. It was sort of the unspoken, um, uh, but elephant in the room at the, at the Saul foundation, everybody was sort of, it just felt like there was, there was all this discussion around the idea that we have craft or that there's debris or that there's some, you know, or it seemed to nobody, of course we got warned, no classified material, you know, not, nobody can discuss anything classified. We're not discussing classified materials. So it felt like there was tremendous inference. Um, yeah. And, so, and the reality of the uh, that UAP exists was, was just a given at that conference. Yeah. Like that wasn't, no one was there to prove. Yeah, no, absolutely. Those are table stakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, what was the, what was the hearing like? I mean, how was that experience for you? Yeah. I mean, gosh, it was tremendous. Um, I mean, how does one get ready for something like that? Right. It was I standing mean, room only. I mean, it was, a, <laughs> that was crazy. I, you know, I didn't know, we didn't really have like, I didn't know how to get there really. Right. There was no red carpet or anything. So I just found my way there like anyone else. But, you know, I ended up walking who, who behind like, what's who that? Who calls you? Who calls you for that? Like, how do you it find out your scheduler? Yeah. Gary? Was it Gary who, Nolan invited you or? No, no, it was a congressional staffer. Yeah. Uh, it was a yeah, scheduling committee. But um, wait, we are talking about the hearing. Oh, we're talking about the hearing or the Yeah, hearing? yeah, yeah. No, the hearing. Yeah, that's what. <laughs> no, oh, that's I thought we were talking about the hearing still. Yeah. Go back to Let Ignore me. Just, no, Dave. No, no, me. I, it's I, me. I know I'm people think Gary was a congressman on the side. He already has enough. On <laughs> yeah, well, he's a busy guy. Yeah. He's an impressive fellow. Yeah, I got, I got, I got confused. I messed it up. <laughs> you know what? This whole, I guess, this is all bullshit. Dave, come on, come and <laughs> bring it, it. Reel it in. Reel it in. We're with you. Um, you. So you're brought in by. The, so have you? But you testified before, correct? On in in closed. I mean, I I don't know. I've I'm gone. So I've 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 gone before. I wasn't sworn in, so I hesitate to call it testified. But I see. Um, I did come for the Senate Armed Services Committee and Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, within the Senate, uh, in the 2019 timeframe, uh, when I started engaging them on this conversation. Yeah, so you'd have, you'd have had a role in in the sudden seriousness of people like um, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Marco Rubio, and um, and in in the House, people like uh, Tim Burchett. I think you it clearly had a huge impact on him when he when he got to talk to you. Yeah, I got to talk to him a couple of times, and you know, in the House, we had great success before the hearing, and I think this was one of the things that really made it successful. Mm -hmm. Was that we were able to get in the, the day and a couple of days before and talk to the chairman of that committee, Grothman, and okay. talk to Congressman Garcia, talk to uh, others there. Some of them weren't even planning on attending that hearing until we said, hey, you know, there are some serious national security concerns here that you should be aware of that we're going to talk about. Uh, we don't want you to miss. Uh, and it really, you know, we, it just goes to show that. I think if you can have this conversation in a serious way, you know, some of our representatives, at least I won't say them all, but at least some of them are willing to come forward and, and make this process, you know, better. And that's what we need. Just productive, you know, conversations in Congress to move the conversation, expand this, this caucus of people. So it's, you know, widely representative of the American people. Yeah. Well, I definitely think your focus on, on, uh, safety of flight and safety of pilots, more importantly, um, and and their passengers in, in commercial aviation um, has been a great way of, of making something that is highly indigestible more digestible for people. 
that they you know, it's an avenue it's a it's a, a rationale they can have even within their own internal debate about it hmm. to allow them to again to get around the stigma and allow them to look at the data and allow them to to think because the conditioning uh that you know our entire culture has had is to not is not just to not you know engage with it, but simply to not think about it right and mm -hmm. you know and uh you know and you've suddenly you've managed you're getting uh government officials and um fellow uh, military I, I would say mostly retired at, at this point i think people have left the service to to uh find an avenue into this subject that that doesn't make them that makes them feel like they can engage with the, the information without appearing publicly insane it's a psychologically safe conversation yes you know and because because there definitely is you know anyone who gets who dives into this and i'm sure you don't and i, I respect that you you shouldn't get drawn into that side of it because there is the more esoteric and weird part of this all that you get drawn into and i think that's i think that's way down the road something that people ha are going to have to deal with but i think just getting people to wake up and pay attention is the first and most important step and i think what you're doing is a is a great strategy and a great you're not just a strategy it's obviously important in and of itself as well um who doesn't want their pilots to be able to report safety issues yes yeah i mean well the fact that tim Burchett tried to uh get like a very short bit of amendment in that would just say that the, that the FAA would report to Congress about when commercial pilots see UFOs and that that was shut down. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's got, I mean, that's gotta be a little frustrating. No. I mean, cause yeah. you're doing, you're doing so much to, to open a door for, for commercial pilots as well right now. Yeah. And you know, I'm talking to a lot of commercial pilots still on a regular basis and you know, they're, they're still seeing, various events. I just talked to uh, a pilot two days ago who was flying um, from Chicago, I believe, to, to San Diego. Um, and much like many of the cases I've been hearing lately, they see a, a very bright light, uh, appears to flash, almost look like a satellite uh, until it starts moving in a singular direction and then it'll start zipping around and orbiting and moving in all sorts of non-standard patterns right. and it'll be a single source of light the whole time so you can see it the whole time it's one of the best ways to tell if it's not starlink if it mm -hmm. changes directions while right. you can see it continuously and then they saw five or six other objects um join it and start hovering basically in a pattern above it um and then they all start shooting down and just disappearing you yeah. know and so they're seeing these things on a very regular basis yeah you've clearly just described the normal behavior of the planet venus yeah <laughs> um, absolutely yeah that's venus all the time i that it's so I, like part of me is the the sheer um just ubiquity of the phenomenon is what's overwhelming i mean because you're talking to pilots it you know you're you as a pilot with your uh you know uh peers and friends and, and fellow workers were seeing a bunch of things in the sky all the time. It's still going on. I mean, it's, it's just stunning to me the, how common it is. I've had I mean, how would you, how would you, how, I guess, how would you clarify? I mean, is that true? I mean, <laughs> how common is it? I guess is my question. We don't know. 
Um, we don't know. I've tried to engage somewhat in the international community to learn about trends, about if people uh, in various parts of the globe have been seeing similar patterns, which they have um, from, you know, South America to Central America to um, the Northern Pacific and Northern Atlantic. So, you know, I'm not willing to say that means it's worldwide yet, but, you know, that's what it's indicative of. But, yeah. you know, if these these things that they're seeing, they're performing those patterns, they do appear to be in orbit. Um, okay. and they appear to be either stationary, you know, which is strange, um, or they'll sometimes appear to move with the background stars kind of moving with everything else. So, you know, I don't know what those all mean, but varying different behaviors that are, you know, we still need to unpack. We are actually going to be putting together at Americans for safe aerospace, um, a report, a qualitative report of a lot of, of these reporting. So we can summarize and, and provide more of that data out for, for general research. That yeah. was my question. Do you want Americans for safe aerospace to be, um, because one of the things that was missing when you were doing it was we're flying was where do we go with this? You know, mm -hmm. whether, whether it's a conspiracy or not, there was no place to put this particular information, you know, and, and for it to be assessed. And it was, it was anomalous. It didn't fit any of these things. So do you, do you want to be that for commercial pilots or military pilots, or, or do you want to just sort of, you know, or do you want to create that at a lobby government to do that? How do you see Americans for safe aerospace working the next year or two? What would be your goals for it? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we've been looking at various options for that. Generally speaking, we want to support the collection of data um, from government agencies uh, that are closely associated with it. So, for example, we've been um, collaborating. On, I'll just I'll just say it very lightly. We've been collaborating on legislation that um, is to that effect. Um, hopefully that um, we'll we'll see that sometime before the end of the year. Um, but. Um, Gosh, you know, what? I'm slipping on what the original question was. No, it's okay. Just like, what do you, what do you, what do you, your goals for Americans for safe oh, aerospace? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, we've been working on, you know, we originally founded the organization so we could provide the general public education as well as re recommend policy and legislative changes on Capitol Hill, which we've been doing. We yeah. weren't necessarily expecting to do the, the data collection to receive these reports from commercial pilots from, um, potential witness okay. blowers and, and process them and handle those claims. But that's something that we have been doing because um, people have been reaching out to us. We've been receiving that information. So um, we have been formalizing a process to do that. Um, however, we also know that Arrow and other government organizations are standing up their own processes to do that as well. So we're not looking to become the middleman or get in the way of that. But right. if there are processes that need to be done that the government is failing to do, then we're going to step up and fill that gap. Yeah. And are, are you optimistic that Arrow is going to um, be, well, not to judge it in its past effectiveness, but become more effective than it has been? Because it does seem like it was very slow to accomplish any of the things it was supposed to do. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, like I said, I, I, you know, I know a lot of, of good, hardworking people that are within that office that volunteer their time to make that happen. But if we're going to treat this topic with the seriousness that deserves, we shouldn't be relying on volunteers. You know, we should have a properly funded program that can execute, that has the resources and the access and the ability to validate it has the proper data to be able to do its job. And so, you know, with new leadership and with additional resources potentially from Congress, I think it can be a lot more effective. Yeah. Do you have any hints as to who the new leader is going to be? Anyone talking to you? Um, 
No, pretty tight lip right now. <laughs> yeah. I vote for you, Ryan. And then uh, <laughs> Dave is right behind you in terms of mine, but a distant, actually a distant second Very would distant, be Dave. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, apparently comedians are way down the uh, the food chain on, on, in terms of who is a credible witness. Yeah. <laughs> credible source. True. You need a comedian to keep everyone honest. The press conferences <laughs> would be much, but yeah, you'd, you'd kill, you'd crush on those. So that's yeah. why you think you, you would be a good... Um, what, oh, one of the things I was curious in your, how much, um, how much data, how many, how much visual uh, information is, is probably still available from the sightings of the gimbal and what you experienced that we have not seen? I mean, it must be, well, I'll let you say, you tell me, I mean, how much do you video and information is, is still not seen by the public? I don't know how much additional data there is with the gimbal. I'll say that there at one point there was radar data. Um, there was the you know the visuals of the data. There was the raw data, all that good stuff. The raw data was probably deleted. The radar like imagery is attached to the FLIR imagery. So if they kept the FLIR imagery, they would have had to chop off the radar imagery and throw it away, which they might have done. But uh, I also suspect it may still exist. So, and that would probably apply to the the Tic Tac event as well. I guess. Um, with that radar, with that radar, the displays were a little different. The technology was a little different. I can't go so, into too much, but so it the, may have been segregated from the. the it may have been a little different. Yeah. Yeah. They might have been using different. Yeah. That was a good pause, though. I was intrigued by that pause there, Ryan. Um, <laughs> so, are there cameras on the? on the planes um the some of Just, the screens are recorded yes so you like have a screen and you put multiple things on the screen just like your phone essentially so it just record records that screen and whatever you put on it it will record uh, and mm -hmm. so because one of the things yeah. i was baffled by is as when, when we were going through like balloonomania that was going on last year with you know this that and this is shot down and that's disappeared and but there was a uh, situation in, I guess, uh, Europe where a Russian plane sort of buzzed one of our planes. Yeah. And there was just this beautiful HD, like 3D footage or whatever. It was just this gorgeous, you know, captured the plane and the angles in the corners. And I and I was like, oh, OK, well, that we can get this beautiful, vivid imagery when they, see, you know, when they desire to sort of put it out there and then, but then they can't find, you know, they can't find a Polaroid of, of the things they shot down over Alaska or whatnot. And I was just curious, um, is it, is it routine to just wipe the can like wipe all that information, the data from the planes when they go through, or, or do you suspect there might have been something more to the, the fact that we don't have more footage on that? So I'll say, I'll say I'll answer that and then I'll answer the previous one, which I never quite finished. But yes, it is regular for us to to wipe that data. So like we'll load the jet up and we'll take the stuff and we'll wipe it after. And then the next person will use it because there's only so many of them. There's only so much, you know, I can't even imagine the amount. Yeah, of where's it going to go? Yeah, it's a lot of petabytes of data over yeah. time. But um, but to your question earlier about, you know, how many photos are out there? I mean, there's thousands of photos. There are thousands of high definition photos, everything that, you know, that would be needed. So, and you've seen, some of the, you've seen, no, some I have not, I'm not going to yeah. claim that I have all the mm -hmm. secret knowledge, but, but most I've of it is classified, enough so. whistleblowers forward through my work at ASA to people in the Senate and people at arrow that have worked as sensor operators that have collected data for years that have, you know, caches of information that, you know, they're bringing forward to, 
yeah do all of this well that's and good that's it good does, that it's coming forward to somebody yeah and, and it does seem like at least some members of uh, government are seeing things that we're not seeing you know it's percolating it seems yeah i mean just to to you know i think i mean the fact that i mean you talk about the schumer legislation the the fact that that got written regardless of whether it passes the fact that somebody of the staff you know people that chuck schumer and rounds that they would write this legislation with the language that's in it that's certainly um mind-blowing language uh and and inconceivable even even if even five years ago that anything would be written like this um, i agree incredible you know the uh and the the amount of detail that it seems like it's i would say it feels like bespoke legislation based on the testimony of people like like david grush and, and yourself and david fravor um and also on the historic kind of um uh information that's, that's i guess coming forward about the, the people in the ufo community have been have been speaking about for for decades that it seems like you know the fact that he even talks about clawing out the uh atomic energy exemption from from freedom of information act um like all the detail that went into it it seems like they were addressing very very specific bits of information that they've been given does that is that naive on my part oh that's completely that? right i think they say you know it wasn't written in a vacuum mm -hmm. uh, that type of legislation was written with a lot of insider knowledge and intent yeah your point it's an incredible document and Incredible to me that hasn't been more widely covered <laughs> yeah, in the press, frankly. I yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, there's a great. I mean, we, we were just saying there was uh, to 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 UFO name drop. Uh, Lou Elizondo sent me a link today to uh, the, an article in the Hill uh, by uh, uh, Merrick von Renningkamp, who's mm -hmm. been writing some great stuff for the Hill. Um, you know about the fact that there's people. You know, a couple of very powerful Mike, uh, Mike Turner and Mike, um, what's the other Mike Rogers, name? Mike Rogers, who are effectively, you know, basically two, two representatives are looking to kill the Schumer amendment. And it's two people who both are have are heavily funded by um, military contractors. One has uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base in his district. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the things where I, you know, so, you know, again, George Knapp is a friend of mine. And he always says the closer we get to the goodies, the more they're going to push back. Do you think we're going to get through this hurdle on with this legislation? I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm optimistic. I feel like we will, but even if we don't, I don't feel like that's the end of the conversation by any means. Um, I mean, even a strong opposition to this bill is as revealing as anything else, I would think. If everyone just kind of ignored and they passed it almost, it would almost be disheartening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, whoa, 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 wait. But know, where's it, the resistance? The execution on this takes is going to take a good five years or so to get that spun up. I mean, when you think about how they're going to, like, the reality is, you know, once if, it, if and when it passes, they're going to have to do a lot of budgetary talks and implementation conversation. Then they're going to select a board and then they're going to get reviewed and take 
few years, you know, before we're at a point, even maybe six years before we're actually disclosing information. So in the long yeah. run, we, we may be into the 12th year of the next Trump administration by then. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but if it's an extra year or so, you know, the conversation is not dead. If it fails right now, there's a, yeah. a lot of ways to move the conversation forward in lieu. It, it's, it's, we're having the conversation. That's what's so crazy. I mean, it's like the fact mm -hmm. that like this uh, legislation was written is crazy in a, in a great way. Uh, it's just that like the, the ball has advanced to this point where we're like, I don't know, I get into the trees rather than the forest. And I'm like, Oh God, the amendment and Schumer and disclosure will never happen. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like this is the, I, I just was so impressed by the, or the Carl Nell discussion at the Saul foundation, where he was walking us through as you, we all saw where he just said, this legislation is disclosure and and the get the gang of eight uh, uh if if not all many of whom are sponsors bipartisan sponsors of this legislation uh are the only you know, bipartisan legislation <laughs> well certainly the the since, rare since rarest pre, of the pre-obama days a true unicorn yeah um and here you have people that that have to be read in on the most pivotal important intelligence matters that affect the world and that, you know, that the, perhaps the executive wouldn't want everyone to know. But so that's why it's just these individuals and almost to a person uh, have signed on to the most gobsmacking language that you will ever see. And, and, you know, the fact that the public hasn't caught on, maybe, you know, maybe catastrophic disclosure would just go like right over their heads. You know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, OK, you know, and they're just sort of, you know, go about their day where we're easily distracted public, I guess. But I don't know. I I, I guess I've gone from being sort of frustrated, of like, will it, won't it pass to feeling like this is fucking amazing. This is, you know, and it's and it's happening on all sides. Like, I feel like the damn there's too many. There's not enough thumbs to sort of plug the dam. How do you how do you feel about it, Ryan? Yeah, it's easy to get caught caught in the trees a bit, but when you zoom out, I mean, we're really, you know, in a bit of a geyser here, it seems, to continue the damn metaphor. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot going on. And, you know, even just a couple of years ago, this Disclosure Act would have been insanity. And even a few years ago, the conversation was relatively mature. So, I mean, this is moving, on, moving forward at light speed, and I think only in retrospect it'll look like that. Yeah. How, how do you feel about uh, being... Uh, kind of a pivotal figure in this very historical moment, uh, not just like not for the, just for this country, but for humanity through for the hist you know, the the actual story of humanity that you may have been um, a motivating force in Gosh, this change. That's heavy, Dave. Yeah, I, I would imagine, <laughs> it's heavy. I would imagine it's, it is. It's um, true. I but yeah, you I mean, you and David Fravor uh, have been a at a huge impact when you guys went public. Well, thank you. We'll see what that impact has been here. I think hopefully in the short term, but well, that legislation know. was written. I don't think that would, I don't think that would have happened without you guys. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I don't know the answer your question as honestly as I can, Dave, I, you know, I really don't know how it feels. It's a bit surreal as this conversation continues to develop. I mean, when I first spoke out, it was a very pragmatic conversation and, it continued to snowball and, you know, more people came forward to validate and stand up behind what I was saying. And, you know, here we are. So, yeah. Like when, when you decided to go, like you went from like just trying to find a way to report it within, within the mechanisms of the Navy um, to then you're, you're out of, you're out of the Navy and 
was that it really was to become a public face of this, especially like even like that first appearance on Unidentified. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of great people involved with that show, but was there was there any reluctance, or do you give a lot of thought to how it was going to change your life? It was oh, I, well, gosh, probably not as much as I I should have, but yeah, I was very really, nervous. It I seems mean, kind I was of stupid nervous. now when I think about it. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, yeah, you know, I, w I was taking a big leap there. I recognize that um, I was breaking, I'll at least say protocol, if nothing else, because I was active duty at that. Oh, you were still time. active duty. Well, oh, I didn't realize that. I thought you had already retired. I was I was still active duty. Um, so that's a huge step. Yes, that was uh, it was the air after I got out. Um, but mm -hmm. I was I was ready for repercussions. Um, and, and did you receive any? Yeah. Um, there was, there was action that was, um, I've been communicated that was taken. It was halted at the last minute, but during that period when I did go to DC, uh, when I did speak to the Senate armed service committee and Senate select Committee on intelligence, um, I was informed not too long ago, about a year and a half ago that I was actually going to be arrested in DC when I arrived. Wow. Uh, for essentially being AWOL, even though I was on personal leave. Cause my intent was, Hey, I'm on personal vacation. I'm going to go do this thing as a civilian. I wasn't there as, you know, Lieutenant Ryan. Um, not that that was my rationale, not that that would probably fly in court, but, um, but that was my mission. That was what I was doing. And yeah, you know, I was taking a big risk. I was nervous. I never thought it would lead to where we are now. I never thought the acceleration of the conversation would continue, but I just thought I was doing the right thing to try to help the folks that were, that were my colleagues and friends that were still flying. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of what did it tell you that that was occurring? Did you take that simply as, Hey, you're sort of messing with the, the code or protocol, or did you take it to that? The subject itself, the content might be of concern to the authorities in your world. I didn't know that that occurred until a few years after okay. it occurred. So yes, you didn't. I was blissfully ignorant for a while until I was told by an insider who told me, like, "Hey, I was the one that stopped you from being arrested." I was like, "What?" <laughs> um, so, and, but the way I took wow. it at that time was, you know, I was, you know, I was certainly stepping in something that had some serious pushback, um, and I, I knew that at the time. Uh, I just didn't, I didn't see that pushback directly, um, but it was there. Mm -hmm. So you, and then became aware of like, oh, there's like a much bigger, or there's, there's a lot of conversations about this happening in different areas of this gut. Like I, I've just sort of wandered into this world. It must be very, I mean, disorienting and, um, to, to, to experience that i mean did, did you go like oh shit like i mean I, once you found out that information you were like oh i okay i'm <laughs> in a way it was almost like okay this is my experience and i have a way to you know communicate what i need to communicate but there's this whole other world behind it that i almost just can't look past that like what's right in front of me right now and just kind of deal with that right. so that's kind of how you know, looking back at it now, almost that I kind of mentally blocked myself from looking too far ahead because it was a bit too much. But, yeah. you know, I engaged with the conversation over time as I had to. Mm -hmm. And did you um, always want to be a pilot? No, I didn't. Um, I always wanted to do something 
you know, exciting and fun. I just didn't know what that would translate into, I guess. But it was after my junior year in college, I did an internship and I said, wow, this is really boring. I don't think I could do this. <laughs> so I quit the next day and I drove up back home and changed my major to aerospace, decided I wanted to fly fighter jets because I thought that would be the exact opposite of essentially what I was feeling. <laughs> so that was that in your family at all? Was there were there no. pilots in your family? Interesting. No. Okay. Yeah. No. You're just I had to have eye surgery in order to meet the limits and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. So oh. yeah. And do, do, do you still fly? No, I, I don't. Um I just not in really a place where there's um anything for me to really rent. Um there's a couple of Cessnas for a few hundred bucks an hour, but I'll save my money for something more exciting, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess those yes, uh, flying a Cessna around probably yeah, seems a little dull after an F eighteen. What am I doing? Some seaplane work or some aerobatics and something small and light, but um, haven't found one yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are your What are your hopes for uh, uh, this this topic? Like, what would you love to see in this next coming year? Like, are there certain um, discernible steps that you would love to see either private industry or government take in terms of? Um, you know, specifically Americans for Safe Aerospace or just this topic in general? Like, what would you see as progress? Gosh, where do I, where do I start? Um, I think there's going to be so much coming up um, this next year, the year after. I see this conversation maturing rapidly. And outside of just the curiosity factor, if you will, but engaging industry um, building, you know, a consortium of people and commercial entities and capabilities to investigate this. There's a big appetite to investigate this external to the government. And I think we're really going to see the, the, the machinery of that stand up here over the next. What year does that mean? Exactly. Like how, how, like what would be an example of, of, of commercial industry investigating this issue more? Well, I mean, you know, the, you don't have to look much past low earth orbit to see all the various commercial space sensors that are in space right now. All those capabilities are all cutting edge and that can lead to a better understanding of UAP. And those are the same sensors that the U S government is buying for their cutting edge capabilities. Mm. So if we can get in early and collaborate with those providers, we can gather new data sources to push the conversation discovery forward. Yeah. And, and then you think we can see some, some, some some serious shit that the government can't keep us from seeing is that the idea yeah yeah and maybe avi Loeb's like gonna it. get some stuff going too or i like that hopefully he he's, captures something eventually he's and, digging and, man and and if you had a chance to fly one of these would you oh absolutely yeah <laughs> maybe not the little spherical ones but maybe something <laughs> some, more like the tic tac yeah something a little <laughs> something where you can stretch out a little yeah, yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> with a very strong suit to withstand the g's because it sounds like there's a lot of energy going on with these craft yeah. as uh, there Tom, they're in a gravitational bubble. I have to assume uh, so, yeah. I don't yeah, know. Inertia, inertia is not, not an issue. I, why do I have to explain these things? I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, 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 it takes me a minute. It takes me a minute. Um, Ryan, uh, I, this was amazing. Yeah, thank, you thank you so, so much. much for uh, pleasure, guys. joining yeah. us for this convo. This was super cool. We hope we can do it again sometime. And um, just again, like, thank you for your service and thank you for just being like out, you know, out there on the front line of this thing, because it's been, you've moved the conversation um, and you have really had an impact. And uh, mm -hmm. I think everybody benefits from that. And, and thank you for your continued efforts with Americans for Safe Aerospace and just all the other ways that you've been giving your time to, um, you know, make sure that people are aware of this and the pilots are safe. Um, so anyway, just thank you so much.
we really, really appreciate it. And it was great to talk with you. Thanks so much, yeah. Tom. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Awesome. And for all you're doing and for all we assume you're going to continue doing. Yeah, you better. Yeah. Give us cool scoops down the line. Sir. Well, hopefully, hopefully we, we can talk again soon. I can't wait. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks. Ryan. 